1893, a goat named El Cid made his debut as a mascot at the 4th Army versus Navy football game. El Cid was a gift from officers of the USS New York to the Naval Academy midshipmen. With a four-footed cheerleader on the sidelines that day, Navy beat Army. Consequently, El Cid was adopted as part of the team. In the early 1900s, on a return trip to the Naval Academy after another victory over West Point, the goat was led on a victory lap through the train all the way to Baltimore. Upon arrival, El Cid was renamed Bill. Very original, don't you think? The name stuck and continues to this day with Bill 36th reigning as the current mascot. Bill the Goat, who is memorialized in bronze on the Naval Academy campus, is a popular target for abduction, having been kidnapped multiple times. Among the most notable is when Bill was captured and later found tied to a median near the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Obviously, some goats are prized. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus presents the parable of the final judgment. The main characters are sheep and goats, with sheep depicted as the good guys and goats as bad guys. But why? Both were used for milk, food, and clothing, and both were considered acceptable sacrifices. So why does Jesus blacklist goats? Although sheep and goats have a lot in common, goats are much more independent than sheep, and they require more work to herd. Perhaps Jesus has in mind the nature of goats to care for themselves more than for one another. Whatever the case may be, this parable contrasts practical faith that cares with impractical faith that doesn't. With this in mind, let's enter the parable itself. For starters, it's important to note that this parable on judgment occurs in the last days of Jesus' ministry and life. As indicated in the verse that immediately follows, the Lord says to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Therefore, presenting to them a parable that distinguishes between those who will enter the kingdom of God and those who will not is especially timely. Jesus sets the stage for this allegory that casts those who are in as sheep and those who are out as goats with these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. How remarkable that here Jesus anticipates his glorious return just days before a most inglorious departure as the crucified Christ. Although he is about to experience a most brutal, savage, and merciless death that will devastate the faith of his followers, Jesus presents himself as the undisputed king of kings who will judge all humanity. Given the context of this parable, 
Perhaps the Lord wanted his followers to see that the despicable cross upon which he would die before their eyes, not as the end, but as the necessary precursor to his glorious return. The one who came as a suffering servant to redeem sinners through his death will return as the almighty judge who will correctly and fairly adjudicate justice to all and for all. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, appearing as the ultimate authority and supreme judge, sits on his glorious throne to decide the future of all nations on earth. For much of their history, Jews expected God to judge the nations at some undisclosed time in the future. This is the time. Although we are not informed exactly why sheep are associated with those judged worthy of heaven and goats with those judged unworthy, the differences between both groups of people these animals represent is quite clear. First, the king, who is Christ, places the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. As the position of power and authority, the right side is preferred, and it is to the sheep on that particular side that the king presents this invitation. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The reason why follows immediately with these words. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Except for visiting the imprisoned, the deeds that Jesus lists were commonly understood and accepted acts of righteousness in Judaism, just as they are commonly understood and accepted acts of benevolence today. However, simply knowing this to be true both then and now does not make it so in practice. The list of six needs are all personal in nature, and to address any one of them requires compassion, which may be translated as empathy for those who suffer that prompts one to love a neighbor in need as oneself. Jesus, the king, identifies himself as the one they helped, but they wonder when they showed care for him in those ways. He answers, saying, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Immediately thereafter, the scenario is repeated to those on the king's left, but with one very glaring difference. The personal needs presented before are the same. However, these people did not respond with acts of compassion. For that reason, they are excluded from the kingdom of God. Therefore, as Jesus clearly reveals to us in this parable, entrance into heaven is not based on God's grace, but on our good works, right? And for those who think that Jesus is about salvation only and not judgment, listen to what the Lord says in that last verse concerning those on his left. 
They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. A major mistake made when interpreting anything spoken or written by others, including scripture, is to present an explanation out of context. In this case, I'm not talking about the immediate context of a certain parable, but the greater context of all that Jesus said and did, as recorded in the four Gospels. Throughout his ministry, the Lord preached a gospel of salvation by grace through faith not works. This is the essence of John 3.16, which is arguably the most quoted verse in the Bible. It is also the focus of the Apostle Paul's teaching, most succinctly expressed in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul writes, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not out of works so that no one may boast. Therefore, it is with this larger context in view that we correctly interpret the parable of the final judgment. The book of James presents the gospel in very practical terms, much in the same way as the parable of the final judgment. In the opening chapter, readers are exhorted to be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James chapter 1, verse 22. Then, in the next chapter, James follows with rhetorical questions to make an important point. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. The point so important to James should be no less important to us. Indeed, what good is so-called faith that tells people in need to be warm and filled and does not warm them with clothing or fill their bellies with food? The answer is self-evident, because faith is validated by actions, not words. Therefore, anything less is simply a bark without a bite, which amounts to nothing. This is exactly what Jesus taught in the parable of the final judgment, which James affirms by saying, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, in view of personal faith, let's ask ourselves, what does God see? Questions for your consideration. First, with regard to Jesus' parable on judgment, what concerns you most and why? Second, how do you think someone who knows you very well would describe your faith? And third, in a court of law, would there be enough evidence to convict you of true faith in Christ?